This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week, we'll be joined by doctors, as well as the occasional guest, to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today, we're talking about a life and death matter, suicide. And before we get started, we wanted to share the phone number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 800-273-8255. Help is available 24-7 if you're struggling with thoughts of harming yourself or if you know someone who is. Don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, let's get started. The headlines are all too common. A major star dies by suicide or, like Meghan Markle recently did, talks publicly about going through a time when they felt like they didn't want to be alive anymore and realized they needed help. And there are many others whose names don't make the headlines. The person struggling with addiction, depression, or another illness. The teen who's been bullied. The middle-aged person who's lost their job or their home or a key relationship. What they all have in common is being in deep despair and not seeing another way forward. Consider these facts from the CDC. Suicide is a leading cause of death in the US. In 2018, more than 48,000 people in the U.S. died this way. 
Between 1999 and 2016, suicide rates rose in nearly every state in the US. In 2016, nearly 45,000 people in the US died by suicide. And more than half of people who take their own lives, 54%, don't have a diagnosed mental health condition. And it's affecting many young people. Suicide was the number two cause of death among people ages 10 to 34, and the number four cause of death among people ages 35 to 54 in 2018. Many things can push someone to the brink of considering ending their life. These include relationship problems, substance abuse, physical health problems, job loss or other financial stresses, and going through some kind of crisis in the past two weeks or having one looming on the horizon. We're talking about this alarming mental health crisis today with Seth Gillihan, clinical psychologist and best-selling author of the CBT deck. Thanks for joining us, Seth. Carrie, thanks for having me back. Suicide is not new, but the rise in cases is really shocking. Um, what do you think are the factors behind this rise? Well, it is, uh, it is shocking. I mean, the, the, the rise in uh, rates of, of thinking about suicide and attempting suicide were, were already alarming in the, in the five years or, or five years or so uh, before the pandemic started. And then there's really been a, a sharp uptick uh, in the past year. And, you know, I, I think you touched on a, a lot of the, the, the causes behind what we're seeing now. I mean, this, the, the suicide really, I mean, it's the ultimate expression of despair, isn't it? I mean, the, the, just the belief that things can't get better, that, that you know, things are intolerable as they are. And as far as, as the horizon is from where I can see, I, I don't see anything changing between now and then. And so for a lot of people, just you know, exiting life seems like the only option. Uh, and so, so feeling that sense of hopelessness really is a, a pretty strong predictor of at least attempting to end one's life and, and often completing a suicide. So I think that's a lot of what we're seeing now is, you know, over the past year, there's been so much that has, that we, we've had to give up and there's been so much uncertainty about when things are going to resolve and when life may get back to some, something like, like what resembles what we think of as normal. And so it's, it's easy to, to lose hope. And if, and if we're falling into a, a state like depression, our thinking often changes in ways that make it hard to, to see through that hopelessness and see any way out. And so for a lot of people, suicide actually starts looking like an attractive option. Right. Hope is something we've all been a little short of in the past year. And obviously the, the data that we were talking about earlier is, is from before the pandemic, but um, I can't imagine how the past year has, has affected those kinds of situations for people. Yeah. Why do you think we are seeing this particularly in people who are younger than 55? Well, it's a good question. And I mean, in general, we do see uh, younger cohorts do tend to have, uh, at least report, you know, more struggles with their mental health. Uh, but, uh, but it's not like suicide is rare 
among those who are over 55. In fact, the, the rates among men are highest among those who are 75 and older. So it, it is likely the case that you know, the, the things that uh, are affecting the, the rates of suicide are uh, touching younger people more than they're touching older people. That you know, maybe they're, they're losing more they may be at a, a point in their lives when you know, the, the disruptions that we're experiencing in our society through you know, changes in technology, changes in, uh, in uh, economic status may have a bigger effect than you know, for those who are 55 and older and maybe more you know, financially secure or settled in their you know, chosen career. Um, but but it is it is alarming because it, it does seem to be the case that uh, with with younger and younger cohorts they're experiencing more depression, uh, more suicidal thoughts, more suicide attempts, and uh, I mean there's there's some indication that the the real uh, the the biggest shift upward may have happened with the, uh, the advent of you know a lot of social media and these these technologies that can very they can connect us but also quite easily lead to disconnection and and cyberbullying and mm -hmm. exclusion and that kind of thing so so it's we, we don't know all the reasons but it, it clearly is cause for concern what are the key risk factors that you want people to be aware of when it comes to suicide well the number one risk factor is if someone has made an attempt in the past and it's it's maybe not the most uh, interesting in a way, it's just that if someone's done it before, they're likely to try again. But it really, you know, as a, certainly as a clinician, that raises, you know, a, a red flag when someone describes feeling suicidal and you ask, have you ever attempted before? And they say yes. Uh, depression is a really common one. And, and, you know, being socially isolated too, which goes along with depression, but you know, not having someone to reach out to or, you know, relationships that make it feel like life is really worth, uh, worth carrying on with. And then we want to, we want to be on the lookout for when we or someone that we care about has experienced a major loss. So it could be losing our health, uh, a financial loss, uh, losing an important relationship. Um, you know, those, those kinds of things, uh, again, can lead to a feeling of hopelessness and feeling like it's not worth, uh, not worth, not worth continuing to live. And then, you know, just being male is, is a big risk for completing suicide. Men are about mm. three times as likely as women to, to die by suicide, but women are actually more likely, uh, almost twice as likely as men to attempt suicide. Huh. So, yeah. So, um, you know, and obviously both of those are important indicators. So we want to be aware of, uh, of access to the means. So if a person uh, says they're suicidal and you ask them, you know, do you have, do you have a way that you, uh, have thought about using to end your life? And they say, well, yes, I, I, I do. I have a firearm. Then I certainly want to, want to try to remove access to the, the means that a person has. Right. What about if you yourself are having thoughts about suicide, or I guess if you know someone who is having those thoughts, what should you do uh, 
uh, in those situations. Yeah. Well, so this is, it's a really important question and there's an obvious answer, but, but it's also not as straightforward as it might sound. So, so the obvious answer, if you're having suicidal thoughts is to talk to someone you trust and let them know. And, and uh, if, you know, if necessary to seek professional help, the, the complicating factor is that for a lot of people, they find that, you know, they tell someone and, you know, maybe they're, they're just, they've thought about it in passing and they're, you know, upset by these thoughts and they would never want to do it, but, um, but they feel like they should let someone know. And so they tell someone and the person, you know, calls 911 and next thing they know, you know, they're being committed to the hospital against their will. And so I, I don't say this to, uh, to scare people and, and suggest they shouldn't uh, share when they're suffering in this way. I mean, to be honest, I, I mean, I've, I've lost, uh, my, my grandfather died by suicide before I was born. Um, I've been plagued with um, pretty intense suicidal thoughts in the past when I was depressed. And, mm. and I know when we're in that place, it's hard to think clearly. And we actually get to a, a, a point, and this is a pretty frightening place to be or to realize someone is at, when we think that not just would things be better for me, if I were dead, but that the world would be better off. And even my loved ones would be relieved if I were uh, to not exist anymore. Mm. And that is, I think, pretty much uniformly false. And yet it can, it can feel very compelling when we're in the grip of it. So, so it's, it's easy when someone uh, describes feeling suicidal to uh, to kind of panic because it's such a distressing thing to hear. And even clinicians, I think, can, can tend to panic because there's, I just think, so much professional fear about, you know, I don't, uh, I, I don't want to get in trouble if this person dies. I mean, I, I certainly don't want them to die, but, um, but there's that added layer of, you know, am I going to lose my license if this person commits suicide? And I, you know, am, am perceived not to have done everything I can to prevent it. And so that can really, I think, set some clinicians up to uh, maybe have a hair, uh, maybe to be overly sensitive to, um, to kind of uh, rush to the most extreme measures and you know, insist that a person check them into the hospital when um, their, their severity of their suicidal thoughts may or may not warrant that. So I've, you know, I, I've, I just talked with so many people who have been suicidal and have, have struggled to find a place where they can deal with that in a way where they feel like they maintain their autonomy and their dignity and, and don't feel like they're suddenly, like, like the person they're talking to suddenly just sees risk mm -hmm. in front of them. And okay, I'm going to manage this risk. And, and sometimes asks them to do nonsensical things like, I need you to sign this form promising you're not going to kill yourself. <laughs> Which obviously, I mean, wow. that is not at all rare. I was actually, I think, I think early in my training before I actually um, was practicing, we were taught you, you need to uh, get the person to contract for safety. Like that was the idea. Well, did they sign a contract for safety? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and anyone knows that that is a total CYA measure. Like that the only reason that a person is doing that really is to, um, 
I mean, maybe a person can say, well, I'm, I'm really doing this because I want them to protect themselves, but, but it has such a legalistic feel. Like if anything happens, all right, that's on you. Cause you promised and right. it is, they signed this form. So I know this is a long that's, answer. That seems so question. hard to believe. Like, you know, someone expresses this, this feeling and someone puts a piece of paper in front of them that I'm not sure how that is supposed to help that actual person who's in that situation, but. Well, yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think it's exactly right. I think it's a dehumanizing response because I think, I don't know if we're ever more human and vulnerable than in those moments when we confess to someone that we, uh, that, that we're thinking about ending our life and, and to be met with that kind of, uh, like you said, a piece of paper, like, ah, okay, I've got just the thing for that here. Why don't you fill out this form? That's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very distancing and, and alienating. And, mm-hmm. and some of the, I think the most, the most helpful response we can give someone who is in that position, I think, is to just treat them like a human being who's suffering and not like a liability. Certainly. What would be, I mean, you mentioned that even clinicians who have training in, in these kinds of issues have, have trouble figuring out the right way to respond. So if you are not a professional, if you're someone's friend or family member, um, what are some, do you have any tips on things people could say or next moves or even just, you know, how to check in on that person going forward? Yeah, yeah I, I think the, the primary thing to keep in mind is to focus on the person's well-being like to to emphasize like i'm i'm really concerned because i this is such a clear indicator of how um you know how miserable you are of you know what a what a state you're in to have reached this point so i'm really glad you told me uh, and i want to make sure that you um you know find the relief that you need um so you don't feel like you have to to resort to killing yourself um rather than, you know, a response that is more about, oh my God, like, are you, that, that just focuses on like, I want to make sure that you don't do this, which again, even if we're just talking to a loved one, that can really miss the point of like, what I'm really, what I really want to communicate to you is I am so, I am so uh, despairing of things ever getting better that, uh, that, that exiting life seems like my only option. And so, uh, so beginning, uh, beginning with that emphasis and then I think it is important to, um, you know, in a in as as human and connected a way as possible to assess kind of the the extent of the threat. So if someone says I've you know I've thought about killing myself, that can mean all kinds of things. It could mean like I had a passing thought about it, but I've never act on it. It could mean I've thought about it, I want to do it, and I'm I'm you know trying to uh, get the means to do so. So there's this progression from you know, thinking about it, which may or may not involve wanting to do it. So that would be the next step is a desire to die. And then, but a person might want to die, but say, I'm, you know, I would never do that to my family or I have other reasons why I would never kill myself. But then the step beyond that would be planning. So you want to assess like, okay, you, so you do want to die. Um, you've, you've thought about killing yourself. Have you thought about how you would do it? Have you put any plans in place? And then, uh, and then the next step after planning uh, often is an attempt. So, and then of course, you know, a lot of people 
attempt uh, suicide and, um, and most of them thankfully uh, do not end up in completed suicide, but, um, but many do. So, so we wanna get a sense of, of the level of risk for the person and if they feel like they're um, an imminent danger to themselves, because then we may need to uh, take more serious steps. And, and you know, in, in, in uh, the, the more extreme cases, if a person really does seem like uh, they can't, they're not sure that they're going to be safe and they, they can't, I mean, no one can say with 100% certainty, I would never do anything. That would kind of get back to that contract. You need to, you know, promise mm-hmm. me I'll never do anything. But if a person says, you know, no, I'm, I'm not concerned. I'm going to do anything between now and next week, you know, to come back to therapy or, you know, between now and tomorrow when, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you come back from work, um, then you know, we may not need to take immediate steps. But um, if a person doesn't have that level of confidence, then it may be uh, an appropriate time to uh, call 911 or to take the person to the emergency room um, and, you know, get them in a place where we know that they'll be safe for long enough that they can get to a better place where uh, suicide is no longer uh, what they're planning to do. Right. Good steps to keep in mind uh, if you ever find yourself in this situation. Um, I think we've touched on this a couple of times, but I want to be clear on the, the difference here. What is suicidal ideation, this term you hear, um, sometimes. Is that the same thing as what people would call suicidal thinking, or does it mean you are actively planning uh, to end your life? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, in my mind, it's one of the ways that that psychologists or whoever came up with the term uh, tends to tend, tend to uh, use words that complicate things rather than make them clear. So mm-hmm. it's really just the same as suicidal thinking. Um, but I don't know if it sounds more official or something, but, um, but it's, but ideation just means thoughts, thinking, and it, and it can range anywhere, you know, all along that range, all along that, that spectrum that we talked about earlier from, from just kind of thinking about it in passing or, or wondering, huh, gosh, what, what would it be like if I ended my life all the way to, you know, more serious steps in, in planning and getting ready for it. I see. Okay. So it's probably, it's quite a spectrum. It sounds like. Yeah. Okay. When someone says they don't want to be alive anymore, as a psychologist, do you see that as the same thing as they're saying they want to be dead? Well, not necessarily. And again, that's why it's really important to check out with people exactly what they mean by the words they're using. Sometimes they just want the pain to stop. And for them, you know, being alive equals pain. And so not wanting to be alive really just means I don't, you know, that, that would be a way to make the pain stop. Or you know, maybe they, they see um, their life as being a net cost for others. I remember the, at the worst of my depression, just saying to myself, like my kids would be better off without me. And, and that actually, I mean, I, I, was, I was not so far gone in my depression or suicidality uh, that, that I couldn't see through that thought and say, wait a second, that's exactly like the thoughts that people have said to me when, when they were suicidal. And mm-hmm. I could see so clearly, like, that is so false. Like that is patently false. Um, 
And so even though it felt true at the time, I could recognize like, wow, that is a really depressed way of thinking. That's how a, a suicidal person tends to think. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is, uh, I mean, there's, it's a scary thing how, how depression and suicidal thinking can kind of hijack our minds in that way and, and really make us believe that this drive towards death is, is our own and it's somehow for the good of all. Right. Presenting you or, you know, this alternate reality that, that seems very um, compelling that would, you know, make you think that everything, you know, thinking that way was true. Right. Yeah. Like I've done the simulation in my, in my head, life with me versus life without me. Clearly life without me is better. I mean, thankfully there are some people who just, for the most part, don't seem to go there. No matter how dark things get, there's, there's like a door that's hammered shut and say, no, I've never thought about that. Never considered it. And then there are others of us and it's, it tends to be somewhat, uh, I mean, it tends to run in families. There seems to be somewhat of a genetic component to it where when things get really dark, that door opens and there's, and you think seriously about it. Right. And to that point, I mean, how much more common do you think it is to have thought about suicide compared to people who actually attempt it. Yeah, well, again, you know, it's, it's not at all um, uncommon to think about suicide. The numbers that I've seen are around 12 million people a year will have suicidal ideation. Wow. So yeah, yeah, that's a large percentage I mean, that, that's in the US. So that's a large percentage of the population. And there are about uh, 1,400,000 attempts. So I think mm. that's about 12% of those who think about suicide will attempt suicide. So that is, I mean, that's a huge risk compared to, you know, just the, the, the base rates in society for suicide attempts uh, that, that, you know, 12 out of a hundred will, uh, who, who think about it will attempt suicide, but, but by no means the majority. So again, it's a good reason why we don't want to you know, rush to lock everyone up, so to speak, who, who says they've thought about suicide. And then of those who uh, attempt suicide, about 3% uh, will complete suicide for a given attempt. And so, so that's about, uh, I think you, you mentioned this, around 48,000 suicides mm-hmm. a year. So, so you know, at the extremes then of those you know, 12 million people who think about uh, suicide, about four out of a thousand will end up completing suicide within a given year. It sounds like you've had personal experience with this kind of this suicidal thinking and, and depression and these kinds of things. Um, and it's great to hear that you've uh, been able to come through that, by the way. Um, so maybe you can offer some personal perspective here. How does someone come back from a period like this? Yeah, I think first and foremost with love and support. I think those are the the most important things that we can can seek out when we're struggling in this way, and, and the most important things that we can offer to those uh, that we care about and and those that we care for. You know, if we're if we're clinicians, uh, my my uh, trip back included uh, some good treatment, um, which was, I guess 
I mean, I had medical treatment because I was going through a lot of medical illness at the time, which had a lot to do with my despair. But, um, but on the, on the psychiatric side, it was, I, I wasn't so concerned about um, my depression that I, I needed um, uh, treatment for, for that uh, specifically, although I was prepared to seek that if I did, um, but I did self-directed treatment, the kind that I um, lead other people in. Uh, so I did a, you know, a lot of work examining the thoughts I was telling myself and you know, getting more involved in um, activities that brought reward and, and you know, started to lift the depression over time. Um, you know, for a lot of people, their um, you know, recovery may involve medication uh, it's not necessary for all, but a lot of people will find that helpful and even life-saving. And then, you know, it, one way or another, I think we start to find hope and kind of want to want to know what the rest of our life holds. And uh, and and maybe eventually we, you know, come back to a, a feeling of excitement about our lives. But but at least we can get through the acute pain in a way that. Um, that it makes life more, more appealing, less intolerable. Do you find that this period of your life, this experience of, of having lived through something like this, uh, does it help you talk to your patients who are expressing similar feelings about, you know, despair or hopelessness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's such a good question, Carrie. Definitely. I, I think it's, I mean, we can, we can imagine what it's like to be in someone's shoes, but until we've been in them, it's hard to really know what that's like, you know, to know kind of the range of reactions that we have to those types of thoughts, like the, you know, there can be shame around them. Like I shouldn't be thinking this way and, um, you know, or embarrassment to admit that maybe it seems like a weakness or something, even though it's, it's nothing, it has nothing to do with weakness to think those kinds of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also I think, you know, recognizing the kind of, um, I mean, what a, how, how depression and the thoughts that come along with, you know, those darker mood states, there, there's kind of a, there's a feeling that, that I can relate to now that's, that, that other people have described. And now I really get it. It's this, this sense of you know, that, that despair being kind of like, you know, I mean, for those who have, who have read the Harry Potter books and remember uh, the mm-hmm. author's descriptions of the Dementors, mm-hmm. that's, I think, I didn't realize what a, really until this moment, what an apt description of depression that was. I knew that, I, I believe that it's related to, you know, her own experiences with depression, but that feeling of this male- uh, malevolent entity that, you know, will, will suck all the life from you and it's really a beast and it's a you know, this this beast that if you that if it if it gets too big it can it can kind of uh, claim you mm-hmm. beyond redemption beyond the point where you can come back and so I that has certainly motivated my um, you know as as I work with people you know help helping me to um, to really emphasize, you know, pulling back from those from those states, is, you know, doing everything we can to to step back from those states as soon as possible, because at some point, you know, there is this this gravity that it takes on that that can become rather irresistible. Right. 
I had forgotten about the description from from Harry Potter, but now that I'm thinking about it too, it does really seem to to fit just perfectly in in how in that kind of thinking that can overwhelm you um, when it comes to something like these you know dark, depressive, depressing, depressing, excuse me, thoughts. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Those those thoughts that make it seem like like suicide is not just not just a, not a, a bad idea, but is actually a reasonable response to circumstances. I mean, that's the level of, of kind of hijack of our thoughts that we've experienced because it does just seem so, so bleak and like things will never get better. But right. thankfully yeah, there is, there is reason to hope. There is reason to uh, resist those most hopeless voices. And even if we don't believe it ourselves at the time to find people who you know, for long enough can, can hold the hope for us and you know, long enough that we can, can come back there and find hope of our own. I can imagine a situation where someone does, you know, end their life and um, someone that they were talking to, you know, a, a family member or friend, maybe they knew they were depressed and struggling, maybe not, but they probably hold on to such a sense of guilt um, such a burden of, you know, thinking that they should have stopped that person from taking their life. Um, what are, you know, what are your messages to, to somebody who might be having those feelings? I'm so glad you asked that because it, it is so common. And I know for myself, when I've lost someone to suicide, my, I mean, I, I know that it doesn't make sense to blame ourselves. And yet it's so hard not to our minds just automatically go to that question of, you know, was it, was it something I did or, or probably more often, is there more that I could have done? And I, I remember, you know, my, so my, I mentioned the, the suicide in my own family, it was my dad's father. And, and he, you know, blamed himself for years as a young man for his dad's suicide. And when, when I lost a friend of mine, to suicide and I, you know, I mentioned that to my dad and you know, wondered if he said you know I of course wonder if I could have done more and and he said that you know the answer to that question is yes there's always more we could have done but that's not the reason that the person killed themselves and I found that so liberating because it's not like well if I could have done more then this person would still be alive because again, as you know, as we discussed earlier, suicide takes on such a power of its own. And when a person is really committed to doing it, there is almost nothing that will stand in their way. And you know, often the person will will be quite uh, you know, secretive about it, or you know, maybe they've mentioned suicide so many times but have never acted on it that we never know. You know, we can't they can't live their lives in a in a hospital ward, and so we're trying to balance. You know, if it's a, a a loved one or a you know a, a an adolescent, I'm um, trying to balance you know, allowing them to have a life and you know find some joy in living um, versus keeping them safe. And so these you know we 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 make the best decisions that we can. And I, I think none of us should blame ourselves uh, for when a loved one ends their life. And I know that that most of us probably will when that happens. And so when it does, I think it's so important not to keep those beliefs inside, to talk to others who can see you and can see through that belief and can, 
can understand where it's coming from while also, you know, talking, um, talking to you in a way that um, can, can help, help you see that, uh, you know, just like my dad did for me, that, that maybe, um, maybe the person's suicide had everything to do with them and, and really did not have to do with us. Right. That is a good piece of advice uh, that your dad gave you there. They were, you know, it's not like the one thing that you didn't do was, you know, the reason for that person's death. So, yeah. And I should just add, you know, a, a senior colleague told me this and I found it really helpful. He said that, you know, as this is, you know, for clinicians who've lost someone to suicide, there's so much, there's so much blame placed on mental health professionals as if, you know, if someone is in treatment and kills themselves, then kills himself, then someone must have messed up. But this person said, you know, we, we accept that in, you know, with, with medical conditions like heart disease, kidney disease, there's a mortality rate. And, you know, tragically, there's also a mortality rate um, in, with mental illness uh, by suicide. And uh, we, we want to do everything we can to prevent it, but also recognize that we don't have the ultimate power to do that, that we are, I mean, this is a high risk um, condition that we're treating. And so we, we shouldn't imagine that, that someone's suicide that, that we were caring for must mean that we failed in some way. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting comparison to other fields of medicine. One more time before we uh, let you go, I just want to be sure we're very clear um, for anybody who's listening, who feels, who has contemplated ending their life or um, thinking about it currently, what are the steps that they should take? Well, I mean, if, if there's no one that, that you can talk to right there, I mean, there are, um, there's suicide, you know, there's, there's a, a suicide crisis line that's easy to find. I mean, I think any Google search for suicide will, will bring that up. Um, if you can call or, or chat with someone 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the mm -hmm. U.S., the um, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, talking, talking with someone um, and, you know, if it's, if, if the, I mean, in talking to someone right away, if, um, you know, as soon as possible. And if, if it is an emergency, I mean, also, um, you know, calling 911 is always an option um, mm -hmm. or, you know, asking someone to, to go with you or, you know, take you to the nearest emergency room. What if it's a very young person, a, a teen or even younger? Is it the same kind of process? Yes. I mean, in, in general, it's, it's the same process, but, you know, it will, it will vary by, I mean, there, you know, there are different rules about, um, you know, consent and that kind of thing, um, you know, depending on the child's age and uh, the state that they live in. Um, so, but I mean, I think that would, that may complicate things for, for those who are not clinicians. I think the important thing is just to, to, you know, follow similar steps to ensure the person is safe. That makes sense. Seth Gillihan, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your thoughts around this so important topic. We really appreciate your time. Carrie, thanks again for having me. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, 
please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.